Well, as we make our way through this series, I hope you can see that the chief themes which Paul picks up in prayer have nothing to do, really, with circumstances and ambitions. He does not pray for the lives of Christians to become smooth and easy, or rich and well-rewarded, or free from illness and disappointment. Paul knows that when Christians live faithful and godly lives, in the midst of a rebellious and ungodly world, all kinds of troubles will come their way, in addition to all the general difficulties that are faced by all men and women. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that we have been called to suffering and persecution as we follow in Christ's footsteps. Paul does not pray that these believers in Ephesus will be delivered from such things today and kept from them in the future. To pray for such things when the Bible promises the opposite is at best ridiculous and at worst a blaspheming of Scripture. To read that the Bible says one thing and then pray for the opposite is not the mark of a godly man or woman. Paul prays that they might have their strength increased in order to resist, in order to withstand, in order to persevere. Paul's priority is not with the physical. Paul's priority is not with circumstances. Paul's priority is with the spiritual life of the believer. Now there are three basic petitions in this prayer that's mentioned in verses 14 to 19. But before we consider any of those, I want you to notice something very important in verse 16. He prays that these things might be unto us according to the riches of God's glory. Suppose you won a competition in a local newspaper and the prize was that you could go down to the local shop and you can choose 100 items, anything at all, no price limit, for free. Any 100 items of your choosing. And you win the prize. And you discover that the shop is the new Aldi on Egbeth Road. Or maybe Tesco Express on Smithdown. Any 100 items of your choice, no price limit. Well, you'd take that, wouldn't you? Now suppose it was exactly the same offer, but a different shop. 100 items, no price limit, but this time the shop is Harrods in Knightsbridge. Or Asprey's, the jewellers. Suppose you were offered a choice between competition one and competition two as a winner. Which would you go for? Would people go for the riches of Aldi? Or for the riches of Harrods? Or Asprey's? Would you take from Harrods... 
exactly the same items that you take from Aldi? I don't think so. You would choose the things according to Harrods, not the things according to Aldi. You would choose those things which were in line with Harrods' brand and reputation. Your 100 items from Harrods or Asprey's would be of far greater worth and value than any 100 items you could take from Aldi. Now, Paul's prayer is not merely that God would grant you out of his riches, but according to them, in line with them. That the things that God would grant you would be corresponding in worth and magnitude to the riches of his glory. That what God grants would be a true reflection and measure of the vastness of his resources. That you would receive in abundance the strength that you need. Because God has this vast treasure trove from which he may supply your need. And the prayer of Paul is not just that you would receive out of that, but that it would be according to that. That it would be a reflection of that. That you would feel like you you were receiving out of those riches. Suppose I said to Mircha over in Arad, to assist you in your work, I'll give you 5% of my monthly income for the next 10 years. Well, he'd be thrilled for sure. It would make some difference, but 5% of my income wouldn't exactly turn his world upside down. But what if I made that same offer and my name was Bill Gates? Well, once you'd broken out the smelling salts to get him up off the floor, he would realise he was being offered something according to the riches of the person who is giving the gift. And that's how Paul prays here. That God would answer that the Lord's people might experience that answer according to the riches that God has available. Paul is praying to the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. That's Paul's prayer, and Paul prays that way because he's confident that God will answer that way. This is the God of infinite power and wisdom and grace. This is the God who merely had to speak and from nothing created and continues to sustain everything that has ever been made. This is the God who owns the whole universe. Before him, Paul bows his knees. To him, Paul prays. Of him, Paul makes this request that according to his riches, he would grant you that in line and according to all that God has available, God would grant you. 
This is a big prayer being prayed with big expectation to a big God. Do you pray like that? You should. Because Paul's God is your God if you are in Christ Jesus. And what of God's glory? What does that mean? God's glory is everything which makes God holy and just and majestic and eternal and almighty and all wise. It's everything which makes him God. God's glory as is every transcendent thing about him which makes him God which I do not have which is why I most definitely am not God. Everything transcendent about him is his glory. What a prayer this is. What a thing it is that Paul prays on behalf of Christian believers and on behalf of a Christian church. Paul pleads that God would give of his inexhaustible riches for the sake and for the strengthening of God's people. And he prays for three specific, specific things. And this evening we'll look at the first of them. He prays firstly that you and I might have strength for the inner man. That every Christian might have strength for the inner man. Being strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. The inner man. The Christian who has been made alive in Christ has an inner man in a way that an unbeliever does not. Your soul, your will, your mind, your affections have all been awakened to God. And you live in fellowship with him. You live in communion with him. Unbelievers don't have that. You do. You have an inner spiritual life. Once all that could be found there was deadness and darkness. But not anymore if you're in Christ. There is life there. There is light there. There is that inner man in every Christian. Now, in this ridiculously politically correct world, let me just say a, a few things about the use of the word man, the inner man. The word man in that verse is not being used to speak of gender, but to speak of the kind of creature that you are, whether male or female, before God. The Greek word is anthropos, anthropology. It literally means man-faced, as opposed to dog-faced, or horse-faced, or monkey-faced, or fish-faced. You are man-faced. You are not one of those other type of creatures. You are this. It says in the Bible, God created man, male and female. He created them. So I am a male man and some of you are a female man. 
using that word in that way. That's the word that is used there. It's got nothing to do with male or female. It's who you are as God's special creation, the pinnacle of his creation. And in Christ, you have, whether you're male or female, you have an inner man, anthropos, the man that communes with God. Now, why through history can we find Christian martyrs who go to their deaths with a calmness in their soul instead of terror? It's because they have been strengthened in their inner man. And what is happening to their bodies, what is happening to them externally, is unable to have an impact on their inner man. The Bible says that when we are first born again, we are in the inner man as babies in Christ. And we need to grow. So, for example, we cannot at first take the meat of the word, teaches Paul, you need milk to begin with. But then as you grow and mature, you can be weaned off the milk and you can be given meat. That's referring to the inner man. It's important to remember this in understanding this prayer that Paul's praying. In another way, there are means of grace which God has granted you that you are to utilise as a Christian. Personal devotion in prayer and Bible reading and the study of God's word. Attendance and activity within the life and worship and witness of a local church. And for these, you need an inner strength and resolve if you're to make the most of them and if you're to be committed to them. You need something inside you that drives you, that gives you that in the morning to get up and do. It's the inner man in the Christian. Now hopefully these things will also be a delight to you and a joy, but strength and resolve are also needed. That's what Paul is praying about for Christians here. Many of you, you'll have experienced just how easy it can be to let some of these slip if you're not careful. You need strength. Paul knows how much he has needed this same strength. He knows that every Christian needs it. An inner strength and resolve which you don't naturally possess. In another way, there are depths to theological study and knowledge which are beyond you when you first come to faith. Some of you have probably convinced yourselves that you can't even begin to consider such depths of knowledge. And some of you probably told yourself years ago that you can't possibly hope to go any further. Or maybe even saw no need to. When what you should have been doing is praying that God would strengthen you in the inner man. That you might go on and press on. It applies in another area too, as you mingle with unbelievers in the world. It needs courage to stand up and stand out for Christ. Takes courage. Sometimes it will be the things that you refuse to do, the things that you refuse to participate in, because there is no place in those things for a Christian. 
sometimes it will be those things which you do, but they don't. So, for example, at work, you don't join in the swearing and the coarse joking, because you know there's no place for that in a Christian. And you don't take any longer than you should on a coffee break or at lunchtime. You don't take shortcuts that other people might feel free to take in the workplace. You refuse to be part of anything which is in any way underhand or short sells your employer. You're punctual. You're diligent. You clock on on time and you never clock off early. You own up if you've made a mistake. You take responsibility for it. You do everything you can to rectify it. You don't try to cover it up. The same at school. You apply yourself the, to the best of your ability in your studies. Homework is always handed in on time. School rules and regulations are always obeyed. Teachers are treated with the respect that their position dictates. And in all of these kinds of things, so often you'll be making yourself stand out like a sore thumb. They can, make you the ob they can make you the odd one out. They can make you the object of ridicule. They can make you the object of anger. Because your life is shedding light on all the errors of the others. The things that they want to try and keep hidden, you are exposing. Because you're living in contrast to them. Your correctness is showing up their wrongness. But to live like that, you need an inner strength and resolve which you don't naturally possess. But Paul knows how it can be obtained. Paul knows where it's obtained. The Spirit of God who is called the Comforter and the Helper. The Spirit of God imparts strength to the Christian. That's what he prays for. It's not biblical and it's unchristian to pray that God would remove from your life everything that's hard. That's not biblical, that's unchristian. What you must pray for is like Paul prays, that according to the riches of his glory, God would grant you to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now that's a prayer that God longs to hear because that's a prayer that God delights to answer. You can pray that prayer with confidence. And in these verses we see that hand in hand with this is the presence of Christ who we receive by faith. And Paul talks about the dwelling of Christ in the heart. Now what Paul is praying about here is precisely what Jesus promised when he was speaking to his disciples in John chapter 14. Now it's a very well-known passage. I'm going to read some of the verses as we listen to Jesus speaking to his disciples about what will happen in the years ahead.
after Jesus has returned to be with his heavenly father. In John 14 and from verse 21, Jesus, uh, no, from verse 15, sorry, 221, Jesus says this. Um, here's a verse that we had quoted this morning. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, my father will love him, we will come to him and make our home with him. Isn't that a remarkable thought? The triune God has made his home in you, father, son, by the spirit, have made their home in you, if you're a Christian. Now, Paul is praying about the same thing. It's by means of the Holy Spirit that Christ dwells in your heart. And this we receive by faith. The strength which the Spirit brings to the inner man is by means of the presence of Christ himself in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Now, there are two words in Greek for the word dwell, which are very, very similar. One of those words is to describe a stranger who sojourns in a foreign land, but it's only a temporary dwelling place. They dwell there, but it's not their home. The other word in Greek means to settle there and make it your home. It's this second word that Paul uses of Christ dwelling in your heart. Your heart has become Christ's permanent dwelling place. He's made his home in you by his spirit. Now, it's true that as we saw in John 14, these things are promised by Christ. And if you are a Christian, these things are already true of you. So you might find yourself asking the question, so why do we have to pray for it if we've already got it? I'll tell you. It's because a pattern is laid down for us in the Bible to pray according to what God has promised and according to what God has said he will do. In doing so, we can be certain that we're praying in line with God's will. And Paul prays for these Ephesian believers that they might increase in their actual knowledge and experience of these things. 
Paul is writing to Christians. He knows what's happened to them in conversion. He's not ignorant of that theology. But he still prays this prayer that they might be strengthened and that they might know the reality in increasing measure of Christ dwelling within them. Is Christ not in them at all? Of course he is. But Paul still prays this prayer. You might ask the question, why doesn't God just do it anyway? So that we don't have to ask him. Why isn't this just part of what God does when we're converted? Well, I'll tell you. Because that's not the nature of the relationship that God has purposed to have with us. We retain our own will and conscience We are to walk in relationship with him by faith and in love. It's an active, loving, growing, trusting, walking by faith in obedience that God calls us to. Confessing our sins, acknowledging our weakness, crying out to him for help and strength. Actively, purposefully relying upon him that's the nature of our walk with God that's why Paul prays the way he does for those who he knows are already believers this is what you need this is how you should be praying for one another and from the riches of his glory God will answer now there's a well-known verse in the book of Revelation it's verse 20 of chapter 3 it says this Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now that verse is often used evangelistically to unbelievers. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You don't quote Revelation 3.20 to an unbeliever. It's not written for unbelievers. That verse was written in a letter addressed to Christians in a church who were lukewarm and who were in danger of being spat out of God's mouth altogether. And Revelation 3.20 is about Christian believers being made hot again. That's the whole context of that verse. To use it any other way is to misuse it. Unbelievers are dead in their sins. They can't even hear the knock, let alone open the door. Now, Charles Wesley uses a great analogy in one of his best-known and most-loved hymns. He said this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke! The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. Now God does not stand knocking on the dungeon door. How does the prisoner open the dungeon door from the inside? Do they give him a key? The prisoner can't open the dungeon door from the inside. And he's chained and bound. He can't even get to the door. 
So don't use Revelation 3.20 with unbelievers. God breaks down the door from the outside and bursts in, in gospel light. That's how you were saved. That's how anyone will be saved. Does the prisoner remove their own chains? No, God does it. They're removed by the power and grace of God. Revelation 3.20 is Christ himself calling out to believers who are lukewarm in heart to become hot again. I'm here and I want you to let me in properly, thoroughly, completely that you might glow hot once more. That's what that is all about. They need to be strengthened again in the inner man, you see. They need to have Christ dwelling in the heart, really dwelling. You see, you can be a Christian, but be very weak, very weak in the inner man. Still saved, still bound for heaven, but weak. You need to be strengthened by God's spirit. You need a fresh awareness of the reality of Christ making his home in your heart. Uh, There's more of that as the prayer continues and we'll see more of these things, God willing, in a few weeks' time. When we look at the love that's mentioned in the middle of the prayer. The heart. Now in the Bible, the heart isn't just about emotions. It's also about the mind and the will as well as affections and desires. Paul is praying that in you Christian people, Christ will fully and completely take up residency in your heart. That Christ will take up residency in all of your thinking, in all of your decision-making, in all of your prioritizing, in all of your emotional life, in all of your desires and motives and ambitions, in all of your words and conduct, that his abiding in you might make the profound impact upon you that it ought to be making. And that in all of these things, you will be strengthened on the inside because of Christ being there. You're a changed man or woman if you're a Christian, not just because Christ has saved you, but also because he's entered into you and he's made his home in you. Paul prays that in every circumstance you face, you will have a greater awareness of the presence of Christ so that when you face life's difficulties, as terrifying as those circumstances might be, Far greater than the terror is the comfort of Christ's presence. So the comfort that comes from the indwelling Christ, the strength that comes from the indwelling Christ is far greater than any external thing which may ever threaten you because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And Paul is praying that Christians might know that, the reality of it. The reality of finding his strength 
in your weaknesses that you might stand. Because a strong Christian, a faithful Christian, a joyful Christian, a loving Christian is a Christian who has truly let Christ in. You've granted him access to every area, every part. Nothing has been kept from him. You've given him all of you. And in the reality of that, you're made strong in the inner man. That inner strength does not come from you trying to make yourself strong. It comes from Christ reigning supreme within you so that he has his sway over every area of your life. Because what has actually happened in such a Christian is that Christ has become the master of his new home. It's his home. And he's become the master of it. You are his home. And he wants you to own his mastery in your life as he dwells within you. And that is where you are strengthened and that is how you are strengthened in the inner man that you might stand and live and serve and love and be the Christian that Christ has called you to be. That's what Paul prays. That's what you need. Pray it for yourself. Pray it for others. Then God really will receive glory in his church by Christ Jesus. Amen.